You're listening to Selfish. This is where we bring self-care and bravery together to encourage you to follow your dreams. Here's your host, your favorite selfish enthusiast, Ali Hembry Martin. Donna Brothers is an icon in the horse racing industry. She grew up in this world, participated herself, and now gives back and reports for NBC on the sport. You will appreciate hearing how a series of saying yes led her into the next right stage of her career. Donna, I am so excited to be talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Allie, it's my pleasure. It's great to talk to you, too. I haven't seen you forever. <laughs> well, this this conversation will do for now. Um, I would love for you to tell the audience about yourself. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no <laughs> pressure, right? more exciting things to talk about? <laughs> no, we are here to talk about you. Okay, so I'll give you the brief bio. Uh, my mother was a jockey, a thoroughbred jockey, one of the first half dozen women to be licensed as a jockey in the United States. That was in 1969. And um, she sort of immediately became the leading female jockey in the United States. And so I grew up in that household, in that environment of mom being a jockey. And to me, that was what was normal. In fact, mundane, because it was, you know, my life. And um, while it seems exciting, it and it probably was compared to others, it was, uh, it was really just my life. And I'm really grateful that one of the things that uh, my mother never did was she never blamed anything on any sort of missed opportunities or any time she felt like she had been slighted on being a female. I never heard that once in my life. And so I became a jockey in 1987. At that point, I was 21 years old. And when people would say to me, do you feel like you are ever discriminated against because you're a female? Literally, my thought was, come on, people, it's 1987. That doesn't happen anymore. Like, we're not in the 50s. And so I really didn't see it like that. And I, I guess it's possible that there were times that people chose not to ride me because I was a female. But I, like my mother, always decided to look at it as either I'm not good enough yet or they don't know how good I am yet. And I would just focus on doing really well at, at my trade, which was being a jockey. And, um, it worked, it worked for me. It worked for my mom. And again, I don't want to minimize the fact that other people feel like they have been ever slighted against because of being a female, but I would always encourage people to look for other reasons, bigger reasons, if they feel like they've been slighted. Um, you know, keep in mind that back when I was a jockey, the top riders in the United States were predominantly male and predominantly from America. And at that time, a lot of the male riders who were either Latino or African-American could have also blamed not having opportunities based on their minority gender or their race. And they didn't. I didn't see them do that. And, and now, really, many of the top riders in the United States, jockeys in the United States are Latino males. But it really just has to do with focusing on your goals and forgetting the other stuff. Like um, I always say there's two kinds of people in the world, problems people and solutions people. And so be a solutions person. Be a person who's always looking for the solution rather than staring at the problem because we stare at the problem for too long, we get tripped up. And so, yeah, that's part of my brief bio. Mother was a jockey. I was a jockey. 
uh, rode professionally for almost 12 years, retired in 1998 as the second leading female rider in the United States by money earned. Uh, I married Frank Brothers, who was a horse trainer at that time. He's since retired from training. And, uh, and really just married Frankie to live happily ever after. But then it was shortly thereafter that I got into the t- television coverage of horse racing uh, at first for TBG, which is Television Games Network, and then ESPN, and then moved on to covering horse racing for NBC Sports, which has been a really fun ride. And I've been doing that with NBC since 2000. So almost 20 years now, Allie. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> So it's interesting to me because it is an industry that you've grown up around. And like you said, it it just felt like home. There was uh, nothing uh, different about being in that industry because you had grown up around it. Mm -hmm. So what made you make that jump? You know, what made you say, okay, this is the path that I want to take as well, not just following in your mother's footsteps? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, I grew up having no desire to be a jockey. My mom always says that she had three kids, one who had no desire to be around horses or be a jockey, and that was me. Um, And when she meant be around horses, she meant long-term as a career. We grew up riding horses. And so I graduated from high school a year early accidentally. I um, had planned to go the full 12 years, but my mother was getting ready to marry her fifth husband when I was about halfway through my junior year. And I had lots of credits because I had spent four years in middle school in Pennsylvania. So when I moved to Kentucky, I was actually a year ahead of the people who were my grade. And so I was a freshman who was in all sophomore classes. And and that just kind of continued. And so I got halfway through my uh, junior year and just said like to my counselor, you got to help me get out of here. You're early. I know I have the credits. And so we managed to come up with a plan where I would take another class instead of for the second semester instead of a um, study hall. And I had to do summer school and then I had to do three correspondence courses. But I graduated a year early and all along I had planned that I would go to college one day. But since I accidentally graduated a year early, I really didn't have a plan for college yet. And so I naturally gravitated toward what I knew, which was to work on the racetrack until I figured it out. And I went to work as an exercise rider, meaning I got on horses in the morning for um, uh, stables. Uh, You know, they have, they train the horses every single morning and the jockeys get on the horses only when they race or when they work, which is when they gallop faster than the normal, normal pace, more like work, I mean, race speed. Mm -hmm. And, And so other than that, typically, the it's the exercise riders who are on them every day so I did that and it wasn't until I actually became an exercise rider at the track that I and and I don't want to pat myself on the back I think so many of us and and with the theme of your podcast being selfish so many of us have a, a tendency to not give ourselves credit where credit is due and we tend to not recognize what we're good at, but gosh dang it, we recognize everything we are inferior at mm-hmm. by our standards, right? And so it wasn't until I started galloping horses, because my brother and sister were such good riders, and my mother was so good. So just riding with them, I never felt like I had any sort of a special talent. But then when I started as an exercise rider, and I was around a lot of other riders who came from different backgrounds or, or different disciplines, I realized that I actually had a gift for riding horses and getting along with them well, especially the thoroughbreds. Um, I just had 
I guess I feel like I had the right demeanor for it, uh, the right temperament. Our temperaments matched well. And still, I didn't think I was going to become a jockey. I just knew that I enjoyed getting on horses in the morning. And I was going to do that for a little while until, again, until I went to college, which mm-hmm. by four and a half years later, I still hadn't done. So now I'm 21 years old, and I was in Birmingham, Alabama at the time. They had a track there then. And a family friend of ours asked me to come back to Kentucky and train his horses privately. And so I had to make a decision, sort of a fish or cut bait moment. Like, if you're not going to be a jockey, then you're not going to be a jockey and you can go be a trainer. But should you at least ride a race to rule that out before you decide you're not going to be a jockey? Because I was fortunate in that I was a natural lightweight, so I weighed 98 pounds. So that part wasn't an issue for me. So I rode a race and, oh, my God, like, Not only did I realize that it was a lot harder than I thought it was, because when you watch races on TV, they seem a lot easier to ride than when you're riding them. Of course. But I also, I thought, oh my God, that's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. I can't imagine doing anything more exciting, more challenging, and then getting to call that my career. And so that's how I started, um, really as a process of elimination, but I just loved it. And, um, It was a few months into it when I said to my mother, you know, when I was growing up, you always told us kids that you didn't care if we became a jockey. You just wanted us to do whatever we felt passionate about and and be good at it. And I said, but I don't think that's true because I can tell that you're excited that I'm a jockey. And she said, no, I'm excited that you have found a passion. She said, "You, you were a bit of a rudderless ship until you rode that first race. And she said, and it ignited a passion in you that's just fun to watch. And so... That's the thing, right? Like trying to figure out what your passion is. And sometimes we, getting back to this original question, we take for granted the things that we're good at as, well, because it's easy, like no big deal. But things we're good at, not everybody is good at. So take a little closer look at, you know, are you really gifted at arranging flowers? Because I'm not. (laughs) Hmm. But some people are, and they're just like, well, that's so easy. Well, yeah, to you, if you're great at that. but not for other people. <laughs> I think that's such a good point and and often overlooked when you know we're looking at what that next step is for us. Um mm-hmm. you know we, oh well we can't do that. That's not that's not exciting. That's not fun. That's not me. I'm not setting myself apart from, you know, even your family. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's a a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a bit mundane, but I I managed to find a way to set myself apart even from my family, which mm-hmm. By the way, I never passed my mother in wins. She's still the winningest jockey oh. in the family, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> That's really <laughs> and cool. fitting. Yeah. Well, and you know, I love that this journey has continued and stayed in this industry for you and just allowed you to take on a new role. Um, so you mentioned now you do cover equestrian events for NBC. Uh, talk to us about that transition from being the jockey to uh, being the reporter that rides up to the jockey after the winning race and and being able to cover just a wide industry. I mean, I can't imagine the stats and the figures that you have to know um, going into these events. So talk to us about how that transition has been for you. Well, I will say, first of all, really fortunate working at NBC Sports that we have researchers for every show that we do. And so we don't have to do all the research work. Those research packets are created for us and we read them. However, 
it is incumbent upon us to read it, right? Because nobody can feed you the question in the moment. Nobody can tell you what the interesting stories are, or what you're going to feel is an interesting story. So we do all the research from the packets that they send us, but also I read article after article after article. I feel like I am on the computer for, I'm usually on the computer for two to three hours a day, just reading articles and keeping up with the hmm. um, industry news. And that's just, I mean, I would just say like average an hour and a half a day. And then during the triple crown season, maybe three, four hours a day, it feels like it just never ends. Uh, and so then eventually what I have to do is I get to the, the day of the show and I still know, like back to focusing on the good stuff, right? I still know that there's stuff I don't know, but I have to get to a point where I go, I know more than 99% of the people out there because the people who are watching us literally have a life that is not this. <laughs> so right. if they've done anything else but this for the last week, then I know I know more than they do because that's all we do. And the whole NBC team is that way, including our producer, um, our directors, like everybody comes fully armed and prepared. And so there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. And with all that preparation under your belt, it's really the only way that you can feel somewhat relaxed once the show is live. And you're always going to feel a little bit of adrenaline. You're going to feel a little bit of butterflies in your stomach because it's a live show. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you come fully prepared, it's going to be a lot less nerve wracking because you know that you're going to be in a, you know, like I don't want to be caught in an interview with a jockey after a race and have them say something like, you know, this is from my son and me not know that his son, um, just got diagnosed with cancer a month ago, mm. right? Because like that would be an awkward for me for him to say this is from my son and me not to be able to follow it up with Jacob who was just diagnosed with cancer last month, you know, to talk to me about that. I would be dropping the ball on my end. And so there's so much that all of us who work for NBC know that we never use just in case. Like for instance, Luis Saez is a perfect example. His brother, he's the one who was disqualified from this year's Kentucky Derby win. His brother Juan Saez died in a riding accident in October of 2014. Mm. Every single time Luis is in one of our big races, I'll have a note that says Juan October 2014. Not for me to bring it up, mm -hmm. but in case he brings it up mm. so that I don't get stuck with, yes, your brother passed away, like, and not have any of the details, right? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. But again, we, it's fortunate that I love horse racing and I love covering it. And the, the other equestrian events too, for that matter, LAF really come to love covering what used to be the Rolex three-day event. It's now the Land Rover Kentucky three-day event. And it's at the Kentucky Horse Park the weekend before the Derby every year. So I live in Louisville. So I just drive over to Lexington for about three days in a row to cover that event and then go right into Derby week. But uh, I would say typically about a third of the horses competing in the Land Rover Kentucky three-day event are off-track thoroughbreds. And so that's kind of fun, too, to see these thoroughbreds in a whole different discipline, enjoying their contribution and their the fun that they get to have in a whole different way. Man, I mean, it, it's unbelievable to me just how your path has 
morphed and allowed you to just do what you love. And so I think that's amazing um, in and of itself. Um, but you brought up the most recent Kentucky Derby fiasco. And so I, I, just, I have to go there. Um, sure. Explain what happened for those that may not have seen it or just quite frankly didn't understand. Um, and give us your thoughts on what happened. Um, so obviously I didn't know what happened at the time that I interviewed Luis Saez. I talked with him immediately after the race. And at that point, there had not been a claim of foul. There had not been any sort of an objection that um, I was made aware of. And it was moments later when I came back that my production assistant said to me, he ducked out really badly at the top of the stretch. You've got to watch the replay. And my first thought was, it's the Derby. He's not going to come down. And then I watched it and I was like, oh my God, he's coming down because he bothered, clearly bothered Bore of Will. And then when you watch it time and time again, you see that he also clearly bothered two other horses. Um, one of them was the long range toddy, the horse John Court was on. And the other one was the maiden Bodie Express. Uh, and there were some other horses who were slightly bothered, but what took so long, I think, as soon as I saw it again, I thought the number's coming down. I think what made it a 22-minute decision was not that it took 22 minutes to decide to take the number down. I think the stewards, as soon as they saw that angle, realized they had to take the number down. But in racing, you have to put the horse behind the horse it bothered. And in this case, he bothered more than one horse. And so they've got to see who all did he bother and which one was the lowest placed horse of those horses. And so they finally ultimately ended up having to put him behind long range toddy and Bodie express who, who finished way back. So I think his final position ended up being 18th, but, um, in any event, they definitely, in my opinion, they definitely made the right decision. It was the same decision they would have made on any other day, any other race. Um, and then I've had people in the immediate aftermath say to me, well, I've seen five or six derbies that were run rougher than that. And nobody ever took their number down. And every single time I've said to that person, name one. And their answer is, excuse me. And I say, name one, name one derby that, that was rougher than that. And anytime they mention any horse at all, it's always looking at lucky who was bothered at the start from the one hole. And my answer to that is we rarely take horses down for interference right out of the starting gate in horse racing, because the logic is that the horses have the whole race to recover from that. And especially you're not bothering a horse at a later stage in the race when they're tired already. So if a horse gets bothered away from the starting gate, unless it is egregious and, you know, that horse just takes a complete left-hand turn and a couple of horses fall in the path it's typically not going to come down. So in this situation, I felt like the stewards made the right decision. The number needed to come down and he needed to be placed behind the horses he bothered. And if they had made any other decision, it would not have been in the best interest for the long-term welfare of horses and horse racing. And really, do you want to set a precedence that the Derby should be adjudicated in a different way than every other race? And, and I think the answer to that is no. It doesn't matter that it's a 20-horse field. What happened at that point involved just a few horses and could have happened in a six-horse field. So that's my thoughts on that, Allie. I think it's really interesting that you brought up this point earlier that people tend to think they're experts, um, you know, having watched, you know, maybe the Triple Crown races, um, you know, so three days a year they watch horse racing and think they are um, 
experts yeah. on the subject matter. And I, I do think we ran into that with the situation this year. Everyone thought that they knew what should have happened. I literally heard a guy on the news say, look, I'm no expert on horse racing, but they shouldn't have taken that number down. Okay, <laughs> like, well. <laughs> didn't you just disqualify yourself with, yes, with your yes. opening statement there? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of experts had opinions yes. on that. Uh-huh. I'm putting experts in quotation marks. Um, yeah, thank you. So when you were a jockey, I, I'm mesmerized by this uh, industry because jockeys – have to stay in incredible shape. And you've kept that up today. Um, but I, I do have to talk about this because you shared in the beginning about, um, you know, being one of the only females in a male-dominated industry. You didn't take that, you know, you didn't have that in the back of your mind day in and day out uh, as you operated. I can imagine that, and this is just me assuming, but that it's harder as a female to control that exact weight compared to uh, when a male does that. So talk to us about what that process looks like, and did you consider that to be a blessing or a curse, or did you really just not think about it? Um, yeah, so not in the way that you imagine. What, what was difficult as a female, and um, I, when I was 21 years old and became a jockey, like I said, I was a natural lightweight. I weighed 98 pounds, and it didn't take me long to realize I was not as strong as I needed to be be. And I certainly wasn't as strong as the people I was competing against, male and female. And so I started trying to build muscle weight and I wasn't putting any weight on. And so I started reading books on how to build muscle weight. And what I learned is that biologically speaking, and I am not even making this up, a 22-year-old woman's body can figure out how to make fat out of chicken breast and lettuce because we are trying to make sure our body is ready to have a baby. While a 22-year-old male body can make muscle out of a banana and a Twinkie because mm. it is biologically predisposed to build muscle no matter what. And so I had to trick my body to build muscle. And I, the way that I did it was I stopped eating proteins and carbohydrates at the same meal ever because it slows down digestion. And so it takes two different acids, but by the way, so it's, it, if you eat a carbohydrate it takes alkaline to come in and digest that. If you eat a protein, especially an animal protein, it takes acid to digest it. If you remember from chemistry class, if you, you put alkaline and acid together, they neutralize each other. Mm. And so anytime you eat proteins and carbohydrates, and by that I mean carbohydrates as in the starchy kind of breads and pastas and animal proteins at the same meal, you complicate the digestive process and you slow it down. And effect Effectively, what you do if you're a female is then your body goes, you know what, I'm tired of digesting all this food and trying to assimilate all the nutrients. I'm just going to store some of it as fat right now because that's what I need to do to, to free up the energy that you're going to need to ride races, right? And so I learned to not eat proteins and carbohydrates at the same meal. Now, don't get me wrong. I still ate proteins and I still ate carbohydrates. I still eat fruit. I still eat vegetables. But I just eat them in the right, and I still to this day do this. So I'll typically, if I'm going to eat in the morning, I'll only eat fruit before noon, no other heavier foods. But I'll only eat fruit alone or on an empty stomach. And then I'll either have a carbohydrate-based meal, meaning some sort of a starchy, um, like tonight I'm going to have some pasta, gluten-free pasta, but I'll have some pasta with some tomatoes and avocado and basil and garlic and spinach, stuff like that. 
Or if I was going to have a piece of fish, I would just have that with a bunch of vegetables um, or mm. maybe have fish on a salad. So I, I'm pretty much vegetarian. Um, I will eat some fish and that's about it. But anyway, so what I learned is that it wasn't so so hard for me to keep weight down in that way. It wasn't that. It's just that when I first started to try to gain weight, my body wanted to make it make it fat weight rather than muscle weight. And I had to trick my body into building muscle weight. Guys have a bigger challenge in that their bodies really want to build muscle and more muscle and more muscle. And so a lot of the jockeys that I rode with literally had to deprive themselves of any kind of food that they could build muscle with. So they had to limit their intake of uh, animal proteins or eggs and things like that and eat just more fruits and vegetables or some of them who didn't know all that yet would just starve themselves not realizing that if they only ate fruits and vegetables they would have been fine <laughs> so luckily as time has gone on the all the jockeys I feel like in fact I, I feel like all of America has gotten wiser about good food choices and and how to make the right choices for your body and jockeys certainly fall into that group of having gotten better at it. Hmm. I mean, I just know that that's, that's a hot topic for, for the industry. So, um, that's really interesting to know, um, kind of the tricks, uh, out there. Yeah. Speaking of the industry, you know, what, when you're looking back at the career you've had with the equine industry, what do you feel like is the biggest lesson you've learned that you can um, praise as being such a great lesson uh, to come from that industry? Well, one of the things I do love about the equine industry is that, and it can be a blessing and a curse, is that it is not politically correct. And so mm. it's the kind of industry that it's it's sort of like, actually better than high school, because I feel like girls can be kind of catty in high school if my memory <laughs> serves me correctly. Yeah. But so here's the thing, like you could make a bad mistake. Um, let's say that a guy cheats on his wife and everybody loved his wife. And, you know, people are like, that was really bad and you shouldn't have done that. If he hangs his head and is like, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. I was an asshole, <laughs> whatever. I was an idiot. You know, it was just, it was a bad mistake. And then people will forgive you. But, um, like I feel like in, in, and also in our industry, um, people root for each other in spite of the fact that they're competing against each other. So, mm. you know, everybody wants to win the Kentucky Derby, everybody, but even the people who haven't won the Kentucky Derby are happy for the people who did win the Kentucky Derby because they know how hard it is to get that accomplished. And so I love the fact that in our industry, even though um, these are people who compete against each other day in and day out, number one, they do root for each other and, and recognize each other's hard work and efforts. And number two, I do love that we're a forgiving industry with people. I mean, like, literally, if, if, uh, if my face broke out in acne next week, I'm not going to go out to the racetrack and have anybody say to me, Donna, you look great. I will have five people say to me, what is wrong with your face? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. So, yeah, and so that, but it's it's one of the things I love about it. Like, those are my people, right? And so I, I, I grew up with those people. I grew up with that sort of frankness and not politically correct, um, you know, verbiage. And so for me, I feel like I'm having to 
and I think a lot of people feel like that these days, like that you have to walk on really careful, like on eggshells almost with what you say in public and especially men to women these days. I mean, the, the Me Too movement, I think, served a purpose, but at some point gets carried away too, where you have 13 and 14 year old boys who don't even know how to talk to the girls that they're going to school with now because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. Mm. And so there's just so much political correctness now um, that it, for me, it's refreshing to go onto the backstretch and not have to think about all that. And you've continued to support this industry, not just by your career, but you give back by being involved in the Backside Learning Center. And we've gotten a chance to work on some fun projects for them together. But share mm-hmm. what the center does for those that may not know. So the Backside Learning Center is really not aptly named. It started off being a learning center where people could learn English as a second language or Spanish as a second language. And it was really started um, over 10 years ago to bridge the gap between the Spanish-only speakers and the English. English only speakers on the backside, but it, that's gotten a lot better. There's almost every assistant trainer or Shedro foreman on the backside. If they're a native English speaker, they definitely know how to speak Spanish. And a lot of the um, Latino um, workers have learned English. So that's gotten a lot better. So the backside learning center could be more aptly named at this point, the backside resource center, because it's a place where uh, workers can go to, let, let's just say that they get a letter from school for one of their kids and some of it's lost in translation. They can go there and the, the learning center can help them with that. If they need to open up a bank account and they don't really know the process of doing that in the United States, the learning center can help them. They also still do English second language, Spanish second language. They've got a computer lab there. They have a library. They have art classes. Um, But one of the things that they do that I think is maybe the most important is two days a week they have after-school tutoring because a lot of the Latino kids are coming home to non-English-speaking parents or at least parents who aren't fluid in the English language enough to help them with their homework. So imagine if you had a 10-year-old kid coming home with homework these days. I mean, the homework they get for a 10-year-old is like, I feel like what I was getting in high school. <laughs> and so imagine if these 10-year-old kids are coming home every day and nobody can help them with their homework, how difficult it would be for them to succeed in school. And so one of the things I feel like the Backside Learning Center does that really serves the backside population is helps the kids with the homework and, and not just the Latino speaking kids. I mean, there's plenty of, um, you know, kids who are coming home to um, p- parents who are from America who are just simply busy or tired or don't understand algebra enough to help them. And the Backside Learning Center after school program helps with that too. So it's a really good community center for the backside. And keep in mind, these workers are working seven days a week. And so they're back there all the time. And it's nice for them to have a place that they can go in between maybe morning work and afternoon work where they can have something productive happening in their life instead of just hanging out and waiting for the next you know, feed time to happen for the horses. <laughs> I mean, when I found out their what their schedule looked like, you know, oftentimes beginning their days at 3.30, 4 in the mm-hmm. morning, and, yeah. you know, thinking about if you were to have kids in that situation, you know, what that looks like in, you know, getting their work accomplished, you know, taking care of their family, but then also at the end of the day, you know, helping with those things like homework. Um, I was just really... Um, 
amazed at everything that they were able to do and, you know, to even think that maybe English wouldn't be their first uh, language. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a difficult situation for it, them, but it's a great again, resource though. Yep. The learning center makes it a lot easier. And the other thing that I'm passionate about is thoroughbred aftercare. So I'm on the board of the thoroughbred aftercare Alliance as well. And, um, you know, that's just gotten to be a really big deal in the United mm. States, especially. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's become a big deal is it's, it's kind of a double edged sword in that we, we have less and less of an agricultural society these days. And so when thoroughbreds retire, there are fewer kids or parents of kids who are looking for horses for their kids to ride because we've got so many inner city kids and people who live in condos. And so it becomes a greater challenge to find purpose for the thoroughbreds after they're done racing. And the thoroughbred aftercare Alliance certainly helps with that a lot. Very cool. Yeah. Now switching gear a little bit to just Donna. Yeah. What are your favorite ways to be selfish? And again, thinking about selfish in a positive light. Yeah. So just so you know, um, again, back to my mother, my book or her favorite book and then became my favorite book was Ayn Rand's um, Atlas Shrugged. And another mm. book that Ayn Rand wrote was um, The Virtues of Selfishness or something like that. Uh, it was named something along those lines. And so I really did grow up with a mother who was not selfless. I mean, I watched self-care happen on a regular basis with my mother. And so I remember you know, God, it was maybe 20 years ago, I went to this retreat, and everybody was talking about why they were there, because they weren't very good at saying no, and they wanted to be able to stick up for themselves better. And, and then it got around to me, and, there, and I had to say why I was there. And I said, well, just for the record, um, I can tell you that you can be really good at saying no, and still end up right here at this retreat. <laughs> so for me, no has never been a problem. In fact, sometimes it's hell no, Yes, it's been a problem. So sometimes I'm I'm not good at committing to people, to things, because I do, I, I prioritize myself first. And the people around me, my husband, my sister, my brother, my good friends, um, I, I feel like they have expressed to me time and again how much they appreciate I do for them. But they also all recognize that I do for me first. So I never, ever give at the expense of myself. And so I love to cook a wonderful meal for my husband and I, but I don't love to cook a wonderful meal for my husband and I if I've had a super busy day. And I'm not afraid to say to him, do you mind calling in an order at such and such and going to pick it up for us? And and he'll do that. Um, and so I think that you you just really have to take care of yourself first in order to really take care of the people around you in a loving way without any sort of resentment. And the people around me, I watch them do the same thing and I expect the same from them. So if anybody ever said to me, well, I did this for you and I gave this up for you. And I would say, why? Like, why would you ever do that for anybody else? Why would you ever give up a piece of yourself for me or for anyone else? And so I feel like if you take care of yourself first, then you're there for everybody else in a much more loving way than you otherwise would be if you feel like you're always giving of yourself. And so I do a lot of things for myself, Allie. And the first is I wake up in the morning and my husband always takes the dogs out first thing in the morning. The first thing I do is go and put my workout clothes on, wash my face, and I sit down and meditate for 20 
20 minutes before I ever come downstairs. Then I come downstairs and I fix my celery juice. I have my celery juice first thing in the morning. And then I take my dogs for a walk and then I go get my workout in. And once I've done all those things, then I, I can start thinking about what I might do for other people. <laughs> but mm. at that point, we're at about 10 a.m. in the morning and <laughs> I feel like I've had a lot of self-care happen already. <laughs> I mean, that's great, though, because how often if we were to set it for the end of the day, do you get to the end of the day and and think, oh, I'm too tired or other things have come up? So, you know, setting that intention early on and saying I'm not doing anything else until X, Y and Z have been accomplished. Yep, exactly. And also it for me. This is why I do my workout schedule in advance, because if it's on the calendar, then I'm not going to sit here answering emails until 11 a.m. and go, oh, crap, I didn't get my workout in. Mm. I'm going to go, oh, crap, it's 930, and I've got to get to the gym because I've got a 10 a.m. workout scheduled, right? And so I'll stop with the emails. And so for me, writing it down is super important, like scheduling it. It, it. Back when we had President Obama as a president, I used to always say, even the president has time to work out. You can't tell me you don't have time to work out. <laughs> and and so it's just part of it's just scheduling it, like mm. schedule time for yourself if you have to. But but you have to you have to do that to really, truly be able to be present for other people. Speaking of time and scheduling it. Is there anything you wish you could be doing more? Well, I love to ski and I ski in the wintertime. I'll take two or three ski trips always for at least a week. And when I'm skiing, I think, why do I not play more? Why is it that the wintertime and skiing is the only time that I ever play? And so I always think, well, what could I do in the summer that would be more playful? And I really haven't come up with that thing yet. I, uh, but my husband and I did buy a home up in Saratoga Springs uh, in the fall. So we'll spend some time up there this summer, and I'm hoping that that will make me feel like I've been more playful in the summer, and and I'll schedule some fun things to do instead of, usually we're just up there for a week or two and then head back home. And so, yeah, my skiing, I can't get enough of that in the winter. I I actually could just go live in Colorado for three months, but my husband doesn't ski, so I don't think he would like that plan. (laughs) So... So no, I think I think it's a pretty good balance, but I could have more playtime in the summer for sure. Other than going to Saratoga Springs, what is next for Donna? Um, well, first of all, I have a road trip plan with my mother, my sister, and my cousin. So we're going to uh, – uh, we, my mom and sister and I own an RV together, and we're going to be on the road for two weeks, a, a trip out west. Um, I was born in Alamogordo, New Mexico, but my family before that settled in Clayton, New Mexico. So we're going to go see where our family settled early, uh, spend some time in Colorado Springs with some family, Sedona, hiking, Santa Fe. So that should be fun. Then I'll spend the time up in Saratoga Springs, and then I'm going to go to a yoga retreat in Spain for a week. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in France for a week in September. And this is a yoga retreat I've been on before. It's a place called Lux Yoga, L-U-X-E Yoga. And it's just phenomenal. They, they, um, yeah, it's just phenomenal. It's, it's in a amazing villa in, uh, the South of France and Nice. And it's just, um, yeah, it's paradise, paradise on earth. It sounds like it. (laughs) It is. And like they have a gourmet chef who cooks, uh, two delicious meals a day, lunch and um, dinner with all fresh vegetables from the gardens or from the local um, mm. farmers. And yeah, it's all pretty amazing. I need you to bring this knowledge and <laughs> back to America and, and host one here because 
uh, I would sign up immediately. Yeah, as long as I don't have to do the cooking. I cannot <laughs> cook at go. her level. She's we, a French we, chef. Oh, yeah. We can bring her back, too. Um, Perfect. Tess. That's her name. We'll bring her. <laughs> Donna, you are such a giving and fascinating woman, and I am so glad we had a chance to get a glimpse of your world. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, Allie, thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure, and thanks for giving back in all the ways you do to all the women who are inspired and empowered by your podcast. I love listening to them. Thanks. Like what you just heard? Visit us at SelfishThePodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes today.